don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, Crypto Economy crew? This is Guy Swan, your host. And I am the, uh, blah, 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 yep, uh, uh, who am I? Who am I? I'm Guy Swan. I'm the guy who's read more about Bitcoin. I need to shut this thing up. <laughs> I get notifications like crazy. I've read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Did you know that? Um, so, we're going to read about Bitcoin today. What? I know. Um, actually, we're going to hit economics. Um, first, though, I want to go through uh, how my trade is going with eToro. It was not going very good last night. <laughs> we, we painted a red candle yesterday. And uh, after I got done with the show, and it was like 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and I saw, I saw that candle, and it was just below the, the support level that I, like I thought was uh, you know, meaningful in that. And uh, I was like, okay, yeah, so I closed it out. I closed it out with like a $100 loss. And now I'm going to wait for, it looks like we got a lot of momentum uh, here going down. We got three red candles if today's paints. Uh, so we're probably, I think I'm going to start looking for buying in another long position. Like I said, we are in a bull market, so I'm never going to buy a short. There's just not, it's too risky uh, in this market. And uh, so I'm going to probably wait until... Uh, I'm going to wait for another couple of red candles, at least the bottom of the Bollinger Band, before I start building a position back in. So that's what I'm doing on eToro right now. But today we are reading an uh, awesome article on uh, uh, the Keynesian errors on time and demand, I believe is what it's called. Yes, found it. Keynesian errors on time and demand. And it's a really, really great breakdown of I love the Austrian Keynesian economics stuff because that's kind of the one of the most powerful things that I think Bitcoin has done is it makes people question the the basic like the the default assumptions that we have like just based on like kind of our political and like really the the propaganda that's been beaten to us into us since the beginning of our schooling that the government is there to make economics work properly, which is really absurd. But there's not a there's there's not a specific explanation. It's very hard to wrap your hand around exactly what's wrong with Keynesian economics. What is the error there? And uh, there's a great piece on Mises that um, uh, I may cover at some point about uh, that is basically hitting this same concept, and it's about the fact that Keynesians do not, the, the Keynesian theory does not account for the value or demand across time. And it's not only, not only is it uh, not insignificant, it's critically important. In fact, it turns the entire idea of what the Keynesians say we should be doing to promote like economic growth entirely on its head. And Ben Kaufman uh, does uh, the author of our article today does a wonderful job of breaking down the concept and laying out exactly why. And I think it'll also spark a really fun discussion um, to, uh, uh, like, I'll, I'll try to clarify, because some of, some of his language is very, like, it's still economics terms and stuff, and sometimes it's still really hard to follow. Uh, so I'll break it down 
and uh, give some analogies at the end to clear it up a little bit. All right, before we get into it, though, uh, I just want to remind everybody that if you have not gotten your BitBlockBoom tickets, talk to a couple of people who are considering going here. Uh, and uh, so if you are going to join me out there on August 17th and 18th in Dallas, uh, do not forget to use uh, coupon code or discount code CC for Crypto Economy. It's 30% off your tickets and the prices go up on August 1st, I believe was the date. So don't forget to do that and you'll save a whole lot of money on those tickets. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and I guess we will just jump right in to Keynesian Errors on Time and Demand by Ben Kaufman. The foundations for the prominent economic theory supporting leading policies worldwide for the last few decades was laid down by the mathematician John Maynard Keynes. The ideas he pushed and promoted during his lifetime are still common among academics and policymakers, and his theory is almost exclusively the one used for economic education. However, as was pointed out many times before, the theory he presented, when logically scrutinized, appears to be flawed in many aspects. In this article, I'd like to focus on a claim popularized by this theory, which is that spending is the driver for economic growth, and logically prove that this is in fact contrary to the truth which is that savings are the underlying implicit requirement for economic growth, while a spending, especially when artificially increased, will promote economic stagnation. All this by applying the integral concept of time, which is fundamentally ignored by the Keynesian school of thought. Production and Time as a fundamental axiom, it is required to acknowledge that all processes of production, the transformation of goods of higher order into goods of the first order, take time. As if it wouldn't take time at all, there would be no transformation happening, and it would mean no production took place. A production process may, for example, be a lumberjack cutting wood and using it for heating during the winter or a baker baking a cake. We can notice here that those production processes are usually only a part of a much longer process, with the baker having to produce or purchase from someone else who produced the ingredients for the cake, like flour, which had a relatively long production process, parts of which are planting wheat seeds, harvesting the wheat, and milling it into flour. We can also observe the correlation between economic development and the increasing length and complexity of production processes. For example, while in the past a lumberjack might use a relatively simple tool like an axe, a more modern tool is an electrical chainsaw, which requires a much longer and more complicated production process than an axe, as it needs components like a motor, an energy source, and various other parts. I will use the following citation to express the point of time and production more formally. Individuals act in order to remove uneasiness by allocating scarce resources throughout time. There are means available and one can utilize them in order to achieve some desired end. 
action is purposeful behavior believed to solve problems. This necessarily must take place in time. There is an a priori value judgment of the possible ends to seek out and following the action to employ the means necessary to succeed in the plan. Time is the concept that something has changed, and since action is change, it therefore implies the passing of time. Quote, Time is scarce for man only because whichever ends he chooses to satisfy, there are others that must remain unsatisfied. End quote. The Incentive for Production We shall now start investigating the Keynesian theory of spending, focusing on its reasoning. The reason Keynesian theory provides for the claim that spending promotes economic growth is that higher spending means an increase in demand, and because production is dependent on and stems from demand, the higher demand will encourage more production. It argues that without enough spending, there will be low demand, which will discourage people from production and cause an economic slowdown. I want now to focus on the claim that demand is the incentive for production. As though it is generally correct, we can nonetheless observe a slight inaccuracy in that statement, which we will explore now. The demand for any specific good is a continually changing variable influenced by many factors such as available supply, consumers' taste, and population size. The demand for a good is by no means guaranteed or even likely to stay constant during any period due to the vast amount of possible changes which can impact it. If we now think of the process of production, we showed that there must be some time passing from its initiation until a final product is produced. If we were to consider that production is indeed a response to demand, we must take into account that during this time when the production process takes place, the demand may and probably will fluctuate. Thus, during a production process, quote, demand could mean a range of possible demands. Anything on the timeline between current demand and the expected future demand at the end of the production. And for this reason, we must specify the exact point on this demand timeline to which we refer. It should be pretty clear that there are only two options which we can regard as non-arbitrary. The current demand and the expected future demand at the end of the process the beginning and the end of our timeline. If we now turn to consider which one of the two possible demands serves the basis for an entrepreneur's decision to initiate production, we must take into account that at the time of the decision, the product is not yet ready to be sold or used, thus cannot satisfy the current demand for the final product. Since we cannot claim that a product, in this case the unready product, is subjected to demand that it cannot satisfy, we must reject current demand as the answer. It is due to the fluctuation of demand during the time of production that we must conclude that the decision to initiate the production process is based not on current demand, but rather on the future demand expected to exist after a certain period passed, namely 
the period between the beginning of the production and its end. Put differently, we can logically conclude that the production of all goods must be in response not to the current demand, but the expected future demand which the producer expects to exist at the end of the production process. From that, we can go back to the initial statement at the beginning of this section and rephrase it more accurately by saying that the future demand expected by the producer to exist at the end of a production process is the incentive for production. For example, the farmer is planting wheat seeds today, not because of the present demand for bread, but because he expects a certain level of demand for it at the end of the production process when he offers it into the market. While this expectation might be implicit, especially in an economy with such a progressive division of labor as today's, it nonetheless exists. This must be the case, as other things being equal, if the actual demand for the product at the end of the production will be lower than a certain level, the producer will lose money or make a smaller profit than expected. So if he didn't expect the demand, even implicitly, to be higher than a certain level, that which below he loses money, at the end of the production process, he would not initiate the production process in the first place. The fact that the farmer did start the process means that, like any other producer, he must have some expectation for the future demand of the product when he initiates the production process. The Path to Economic Development Now let's take a small pause for a moment to focus on what economic development means. In simple terms, economic development, or progress, is the improvement of the ability of people to satisfy their needs. A probably unique trait of humans, to which we may attribute the most significant effect on economic progress, is the production of goods of higher order. Goods which are meant not to be consumed, but instead used to produce consumable goods, goods of the first order. The larger and more advanced the stock of goods of higher order available to the people, the more they can produce and the better they will be able to satisfy their future needs. Moreover, as mentioned before, we should note that the increase in the length of a complete production process, the number of different goods used in it, and its overall complexity tends to rise along with the progress of civilization. We can therefore state that a path to economic progress may require increasing the stock and variety of high-order goods available for production, thus improving the production processes. Improving production will provide for an increased output of consumption goods in the future, which will allow people to satisfy their needs better. Spending and Economic Growth now we can start analyzing the theory that spending incentivizes production and thus leads to economic growth. The problem with this theory is that, while compelling, it fails to address the time dimension in economics, in this case accounting for future demand as well as present demand, which when addressed adequately leads to entirely different conclusions. To believe spending leads to economic growth is to think that enhancement of the production capacity, mainly by the production of goods of higher order, 
which is the primary form of economic growth, is the result of current demand rather than the expected future demand for consumption goods. However, since we showed that producers rely on the expected future demand, not current demand when deciding to start a production process, we can say with certainty that this is not the case. We can now conclude that economic development stems from the improvement and enlargement of production, which is driven by an expectation for future demand and not by present demand. This conclusion indicates that the hypothesis that more spending leads to economic growth can't be accurate, as it ignores the fact that current demand is different from and has different economic implications than the future expected demand. We shall now try to understand then, according to the corrected statement, which is that spending leads to higher present demand, what are the implications of spending on economic growth? Spending implies people's preference to direct resources into the current production and distribution of consumption goods, which they can purchase and consume in the present. This preference for current consumption arises instead and at the expense of preference for the production of goods of higher order. The difference between those preferences is that while the former does not contribute towards economic growth as consumption goods cannot be used for the production of future goods, which will satisfy future demands, the latter could facilitate the improved production of future goods, which is the essence of economic growth. In other words, we can say that the former is a preference for the consumption and therefore depletion of existing resources while the latter is a preference for the improved production of future goods and thus for the greater satisfaction of future needs. From the above, we can conclude that increased spending will cause the rise of current demand, which does not promote economic progress, but stagnation and depletion of resources. All right, let's take a break right here for a second. Um, uh, I'm going to need something to drink, but I'm going to tell you, we, we've got a new sponsor, and I, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but maybe it was after like 2,000 followers or something, the spam started rolling in for promote my new decks, and oh, I've got a great utility token that's going to decentralize, blah, blah, and I have to say that it's... Maybe it's the crypto economy name. That's, maybe that's what it is that makes, think, makes people think that I'm an ICO pumper. But I'm really, really happy to have eToro with us as a sponsor now because they are a trusted exchange. I've known of them for quite some time, and they've been around for a while. The platform is actually older than Bitcoin uh, because uh, outside of the U.S. you can buy stocks and other assets. You can't do that in the U.S. yet. But you can buy and trade 14 of the top cryptocurrencies. That's one monetary revolution and 13 shitcoins that you can bet against or with. Um, and I'm playing around with their virtual account feature uh, where I just have $100,000 worth of fake money. And I can basically trade and develop my strategy and, and get familiar with the process so that I'm ready for the coming bull market. So I have like a strategy developed and... Uh, I think my strategy is going to be pretty simple. I'm just going to buy the dip, which seems to have worked out pretty well in the past. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. 
But, you know, if I wasn't an idiot, I would actually make use of the coolest feature that they have on their platform is that you can actually look at the portfolios of the top traders. And I don't mean like you can just see how much money they have. Like you can look at their exact trades, their time frames, and study their strategies. You can even chat with them or anyone else in the 10 million plus community that they've got up there. It's like an a Bitcoin exchange with like a social media thing built in so you can chat and talk with a community of traders. It's really, really neat. Um, setting up your account is really easy. I'll post the link in the show notes and in the Twitter post. So if you want to help out this show, one way you can do that is by checking out eToro. Uh, go to that link and uh, let them know that you appreciate them supporting this podcast. And I really do. They're a good platform, and they are helping to keep this show alive. All right. So uh, don't forget to check out that link in the show notes and the Twitter post. And I'm going to go get my drink, and then we're going to jump right back into this article. Savings and Economic Growth It is only appropriate now to explore what will promote economic development. And it is not surprising that the answer is the opposite of spending, which are savings. As the opposite of spending, savings were demonized by the Keynesian theorists as holding back potential spending, which according to their theory could be used to drive economic growth, reducing present demand and prices as a result, and by that reducing the incentive to produce. However, as pointed out above, it is not current demand, but future expected demand which incentivizes production. Therefore, we should reject this argument against savings and investigate into its actual economic effects. Savings signal a higher demand for future goods than a need for present goods. People save their money for future use. Thus, savings increase the expectation for future demand and, in accordance, incentivize production and promote the allocation of resources into the improvement of the production processes, namely, developing the production of goods of higher order. In other words, savings represent the phenomena of people delaying their consumption and saving their money to use later. Saving money for future use means that the expectations for future demand should increase, which in turn will incentivize long-term production and economic growth. According to the analysis above, we can describe the economic difference between spending and savings as follows. Spending is the preference for the satisfaction of current demand rather than of future demand and will drive more resources to satisfy the former over the latter. While on the other hand, savings are the preference for satisfying future demand, which means an increased future demand will be expected and thus more resources will be available for and directed to the development of production goods, which will allow for the satisfaction of the increased expected future demand for consumption. Time Preference and Economic Growth This concept of preferences for the time of consumption, from the present to the very distant future, which we discussed above, is what we call time preference. Other things being equal, an economizing individual will always prefer a more immediate satisfaction of needs compared to the same satisfaction in a later time. Therefore, whenever individuals delay the satisfaction of their needs, 
they will do so only if the future satisfaction is expected to be higher than the immediately available satisfaction by a certain magnitude which they find sufficient to compensate for the delay. In other words, they necessarily price the delay in the satisfaction of their needs. This subjective valuation of the delay is what determines the degree of time preference. The lower the relative value assigned to present satisfaction, the lower the degree of time preference is, and vice versa. We can define the preference for current consumption expressed by spending as a relatively high time preference, while the delay of consumption and the preference for a better provision for the future expressed by saving, we should define as relatively low time preference. Since we know that the path towards higher forms of civilization inevitably requires lengthening the production periods, we can conclude that lowering time preference, our valuation of the present, means more willingness to plan for increasingly more distant future. Thus, lower time preference will allow to improve production and promote economic growth. Economic Implications Before finishing, I'd like to now briefly elaborate on what implications the corrected theory discussed above has on the economy. Thomas Sowell has defined the central concern of economics as, quote, the allocation of scarce resources which have alternative uses, end quote. Labor, capital, and other resources will inevitably be allocated in one way or another, unless prohibited by regulations. The only question is how and to which parts will people direct the allocation of those resources. Spending will cause more resources to be allocated to the current and short-term production of goods of lower order, and by that, shift resources away from the long-term production processes of goods of a higher order. Savings, on the other hand, will do just the opposite. By lowering spending on consumption, less cash flow will be available for the sectors of the short-term production and distribution of goods of lower order, and thus more resources and further investments from savings will be available for the long-term production processes. The increase in available resources will, as mentioned, be accompanied by the expectations of higher future demand induced by saving, which will further promote undertaking long-term production processes. With the latter case, we can see a trend towards growth and improvement, which will eventually lead to a more abundant supply of goods than in the former case. The result of this further abundance will be gradually decreasing prices for goods, allowing the enhanced provision of each individual's needs. This enhancement in individual provision reduces the need for present-oriented behavior, as the satisfaction of present needs can be met more thoroughly, thus making them marginally less important, and will allow focusing on the further improvement of production. The continuous process of reducing spending, which leads to more abundance of goods, which reduces prices and thus allows for higher consumption and the even further reduction of spending without lowering and potentially increasing living standards, is what we call the process of civilization. The conclusion I would like to draw from the above is simple. High spending encourages economic stagnation. 
while savings encourage improving production processes and thus promotes economic development. It seems that the main flaw hiding behind the opposite theory developed by Keynes could be attributed to an ignorance of time, which caused the confusion of current demand with the expected future demand. Time is an inseparable dimension of reality and must be rigorously applied in the formulation of economic theory. And that concludes Keynesian Errors on Time and Demand by Ben Kaufman. And this was actually his first article published on Medium. Uh, so uh, no doubt we will have a lot to uh, see from him in the future, and that's really exciting. It's, uh, this was actually funny because uh, when he published this, um, he, he was talking about, like, you know, this is kind of my first foray into the whole Austrian economics uh, like writing and stuff, and I love that this is kind of the first thing that he hit on, and it's one of the most powerful things about Bitcoin, in my opinion, is how it makes you think differently about economics, like things that just are not normally questioned suddenly are kind of in the forefront of your mind, and you ask, like, you know, like, I can't tell you how many times like I've brought up or somebody else has brought up and like challenged me and like maybe a meetup or something that I've talked about with Bitcoin and they go, but it can't work, right? Like we're talking about an economy that can't have any growth, right? Like like everything will just be stagnant because no one will spend money on consumer goods. And it's funny, like if you think about it at any length, uh, you, you realize like it couldn't be, I mean, just just on its face. Just think about it in the most basic sense that if everybody's individual situation were better off, then the economy as a whole would be better off, right? We'd be able to weather if everybody had, you know, two, three thousand dollars in savings across the entire economy. Well, then, you know, if something terrible happened, like a hurricane or something, we'd be better prepared to handle it. We'd have an excess of resources in production to fix all of the problems. Like a downturn in the economy wouldn't be so bad. Uh, we'd be able to make it through. We'd be able to pull from our savings. And in just an individual sense, obviously, obviously, we would, our lives would be better with $4,000, $3,000 in savings than $1,000 in debt and nothing, to our name, nothing else to our name. And that's what, they're, that's what they're pushing. That's what the economic policy is pushing is that it's better for us, for us to all be in debt because if we push ourselves into debt now, well, then we can have more consumer goods and that will increase production, et cetera, et cetera. But you're looking, you're, you're missing the most basic element is that what we are producing now and the demand for it is not the same as the demand for that thing or something else, a solution to our problem in the future. So there's a, a lot of different things in this that I kind of want to clarify and just kind of reiterate first is that he kind of talks about like coming from a fundamental axiom and uh, just for anybody who's not familiar with that word axiom is basically just like a universal truth like when you deduce down to like the core of whatever you're talking about the axiom is that universal truth like you can't have your cake and eat it too if you eat your cake your cake is gone you know etc and uh, then he talks about like higher order goods and first order goods. First order goods, he, I mean, he pretty much clarifies and makes it uh, make sense. But 
just in case first order goods are your consumer products. You know, a sandwich is a first order good. A uh, iPhone is a first order good. It's the thing that you buy. And higher order goods are the raw materials, the, the oil, the gears to put your engine together, um, to the machines used in the production process, like all of that stuff. Those are the higher order goods that makes the final product uh, possible. That, uh, like the meat slicer for the sandwich is the higher order good. You buy a meat slicer so that you can make sandwiches. And uh, the very foundation, the idea of economic growth is the improvement of the production processes. It means that we can use less resources to produce or solve the same problem. So if we're all looking to you know, if we're all hoping that we have reliable and low-cost clothing, well, then the economic growth would come in the, the greater ability to produce highly effective, low-cost clothing. That's what economic growth is. That's what it means to be wealthier as an economy. But the fact that they do not delineate, and uh, there was a piece on... Uh, uh, Mises.org not too long ago that shows there was a chart. Man, I need to go find that. Um, I, if, if I can find it, it's pro I'm probably not going to be able to find it But because um, uh, I don't remember what the actual article was about. But there was a chart in it talking about the differences between Keynesian economics and Austrian economics and what is uh, not accounted for in Keynesians or, or in the Keynesian theory, what is largely ignored. And the key to all of the major differences was that Keynesian economics did not factor in time. They had no way to properly value the fact that the future is, that the same, um, the same thing in the future is not worth as much as the same thing today. And that's, a, that's an obvious truth. That's an, it has to be accounted for. Like, a, if you're starving to death, a burger today is incredibly valuable, but a burger in three weeks doesn't do you any good. You're dead in three weeks. And that's the constant trade-off that, um, that we can truly never escape. It's always a part of our decision-making. Like, like, let's say, like, you know, I want to go out and have a good weekend this weekend, and uh, I have, to, I have uh, you know, $20, $30 to spend at the movies. Do uh, me and my wife go watch... Chucky 3 or whatever the hell it is uh, because there's no other movies, there's no other good movies out or do we wait two weeks and watch the new Avengers or something? Like it, it's every single decision we make has to factor that and the fact that Keynesian economics just like sums this up into this giant aggregate of demand and does not differentiate between future demand and present demand is just completely ignoring how how life is, like like a basic axiom of being alive if we are always factoring it into our decisions into every decision and action that we take then it must also be present in our economic theories because all of our economic decisions and uh, economic production depends on what we think about the cost and value of our time. So in laying out this argument, first thing you have to do, um, which Ben addresses, is the essentially separating 
the idea of current demand from the future expected demand. Now, if I'm going to, and a decent example is the fact that, like, uh, I know a lot of other people are doing this as well, and uh, myself included, working on a Bitcoin education uh, project of some sort. And a lot of the reason, like this podcast, I consider, I consider this based on, like, my entire reason for doing this is based on my future expected demand. I think we're going to have another massive bull run and there's going to be a huge hype cycle, and having an established podcast and established uh, Bitcoin educational resource of some sort is going to put, put me in a, in a huge position going forward to uh, profit from that, to uh, accumulate a large community of listeners and uh, people who are trusting me to explain things to them and like, teach them how to navigate this crypto economy space. And that's, that's, why, that's why I'm doing this is because not because of the demand right this second, but because I'm expecting that demand to grow uh, heavily into the future. That's I mean, right this second is this is not paying for itself, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely getting there and it's a whole hell of a lot better than it was when I first started. But if I was, if I was doing this based on what I thought the demand was right now, I'd already have to stop. Like this would be over. And in that same way, any major production process that goes on, like the baker baking the cake, it isn't just a simple process of the baker has to expect cake to be desired in you know, two hours before they bake it. But they have to set up a bakery. We're talking, we're talking about someone who actually figures out all the pieces of the puzzle needed to uh, set up an oven, set up a storefront, to set up an entire bakery that might take months, years possibly, to get this thing in order, there better be demand for cake at the end of that line. And it doesn't matter if there's huge demand right now, they want to know what the demand is going to be when they are done, when they have their first cake ready to go. So when we recognize that, and then at the same time we realize that there are scarce goods, when there are only so many resources that we have to go around, we have to remember that if, if we incentivize spending today, it means we're requesting that someone who is planning to spend in two weeks or was going to have money in a couple of months, that it be wasted today on a consumer good as opposed to saved for a couple of months. You can't do that. You can't do both of those things. If you're encouraging spending, you're saying, let's not have more resources for the future, which means that no matter what, you, every dollar you spend today is, a less, is less expected demand in the future. And there is legitimate, legitimately no way around that. That is, a, that is a fundamental part of nature. That is, that is a fundamental law of the fact that things are scarce. Any spending that we do today must be at the cost of the spending that we do in the future. And uh, another really interesting thing that he points out kind of as the foundation for this argument is talking about how the idea of economic development and economic growth really is a correlation. It's, it's, a, it's an implication, essentially, of the increasing length and complexity of production processes, which is not really obvious until you like 
seriously look into it, but it is truly the number of options in higher order goods, the number of alternatives that we have that really change how quickly and how well we can produce a product. And like, for instance, like the, the example that he used with the lumberjack might just use an axe to cut down trees, or you could use a chainsaw or hell, you can probably buy one of those giant like tree eating tractors that literally spits out lumber the other end uh, after it eats the tree. And when you're looking at the production processes of these things, like uh, farming just in general is a great example because now it's done with these giant machines. The production processes of all of those machines is a whole different thing to consider than just hiring a bunch of people to pick your plants. I mean, you've got engines, you've got gears, you've got oil, you've got all kinds of systems, you've got a giant transmission, you have a uh, you have millions of people probably cumulatively doing the production process that ends up in one of those massive uh, automated machines that just runs down and harvests an entire, you know, acres and acres and acres of corn or wheat or whatever it is that you're growing. And it is exactly because of the incredible complexity that there are so many people working towards uh, creating that production. And because of that, one person in farming is hundreds, maybe even thousands of times more productive than what 100 people were, you know, 150 years ago because of the increasing complexity and the breadth of the production process and higher order goods that you can now use in the process of farming. That is how you create wealth. You make it take fewer resources to do the same thing. And it is in the fact that we can cooperate and trade all of our tiny, tiny efficiency boosts and allocate these, uh, this production properly across time. So then we're forced to ask, which is it spending today or savings today? That, that encourages someone to start a project that will not end for a year, two years. And the, the answer should really be obvious, is that if no one has capital saved, then no one is going to be buying your product in a year or two. And in the same sense, you also don't have any resources to actually create a new production process. Like, like just looking at it, again, like one of my favorite things to do when you're thinking about economics is to break it down to like one or two people is what what would actually be happening if we're encouraging someone to make to consume today versus save for the future and uh, a good example is the there's this great little story i think it's like a cartoon like comic thing uh just about um how economies grow and why they don't i think is what it's called um, I'll see if I can find that link and drop it in the show notes. But it's, it's basically the story of what economic production, economic growth means. And it uh, shows the story of uh, this guy who, you know, throws a line out into the water and fishes and catches a fish, to d- fish every day. And if he is encouraged to spend, like if he is, quote unquote, spending his resources every day, it means that he's eating his fish every day. The only way that he could increase his productivity 
is to take five days off and test his theory that he could make a net that catches more fish. So if he is spending a fish every day, he's, excuse me, he is spending, uh, eating a fish, but that's spending, that's consumption. If he is consuming his fish every single day and all he is doing is making ends meet, he is just getting exactly the food he needs to make it to the end of the day and then start it again the next day, he's not saving any resources, then there is no way for him to take five days off to make a net. Now, if he eats half a fish a day for 10 days and saves up uh, roughly five fish, he now has the resources, he has the food to take that five days off and make a net that will now allow him to catch two or three fish a day because he's improved that production process. And now the entire economy is incredibly wealthier because he is catching fish three times faster than he was in the past. And because of that, we have, you know, have a surplus of resources, and now he can save even more. Now he can save a fish a day and eat twice as much as he was eating and uh, create something else. You know, he, he can change some other production process. Maybe he also forages for berries and nuts in the winter or something. But, but you get the idea is that without the actual resources, there is no way for him to take those resources to change his production process. And it is exactly when spending is low, when consumption is low, and savings is high, that you would be signaled in a market economy to make that exchange, to stop focusing so much on the current consumer goods that you are producing and make those major shifts into changing and bettering that production process. And how this is managed how this is incentivized is with the interest rate this is the key piece of this entire puzzle is that that price the interest rate is the price of capital over time it's the price how much does it cost for me to use these resources today versus how much return can i get if i wait and use those uh, use these resources in a year or i use them in order to create a production process that will benefit me in a year or two. And this is really basic, right? Like you can easily see this in like housing as a perfect example because it's so tightly correlated to the uh, Federal Reserve and like interbank lending. Like those are, I can't remember exactly how it works, but like, you know, obviously your, your mortgage is an incredibly low interest rate for actually um, uh, taking out a loan versus something like a credit card. Uh, they're, they're much more highly correlated. So if interest rates are like 15, 20%, like nobody's going to get, I'm not going to buy a house at 15 or 20% interest rates. And what that is saying, what the, what the interest rate would be indicating in a market economy is just like anything in which there is low supply. It's like when the price goes up, when uh, you know, after a hurricane and we're low on wood and everyone is trying to repair their houses, well, the price of wood skyrockets because it's trying to, the market is indicating, look how much, there's so much scarcity here. We do not have enough supply. Please, everyone and their cousin who has any kind of lumber, pick it, put it up in your pickup truck and drive halfway across the country and drop it in this area because... Prices are incredibly high. 
it signals people to move and make decisions based on market prices that accumulate the, the use of knowledge in society. There is another great one to go back. If you have not listened to that episode, that's talking all about how much information is actually accumulated in something as seemingly simple and basic as a market price. If I'm trying to build a deck and I just go to the store and notice how freaking high the price of wood is, I'll be like, I don't really need my deck. I am not going to build it right now. I'll wait for these prices to come back down. This is ridiculous. And I don't have to know that that's because there was a giant hurricane on the East Coast or something like that. Like, I don't have to know why the price is high, but my behavior immediately shifts because the price is high, meaning I do the right thing by default. I, al- I make the decision to not waste resources that someone else desperately needs because I don't really need it that much. And no one had to explain to me why. Nobody had to, like, twist my arm or make some spiel about how someone else's life is more important and please think of the children. I just already made the correct decision in line with the fact that someone else needs these resources far more desperately than I do. So in the case of like an interest rate, I would not take out a loan to build or buy a house because it's suggesting that nobody nobody's has those resources. That those resources aren't there. We desperately need people to save the resources for me to consume a whole house. Like understand, like I can't have a house in like if we're talking about everyone in the whole world having a house it would mean that every single person would have to be able to produce the value that it takes to make a house. We have to produce the equivalent of all the nails, of all the lumber, of uh, all the, the countertops. Everything in that house has to be produced for every single person. If we're not actually producing, you can't build a house on maybe I'm going to do something later. Like You can't build a house on the promise of wood. You have to stop and you have to wait and you have to sit on your hands until somebody brings you wood. Then you can build a house. And in that same way, if the interest rate is incredibly high, it is signaling for whatever reason that there is not enough savings. There's not enough actual resources, wood, bricks, nails, whatever it is, to actually build or consume an entire house out of the economic pool of resources. So I'm going to be incentivized to not do that right now. But if interest rates are very low, it would indicate that there is tons of saving. Uh, There is surpluses all across the economy, and people can gladly offer up these resources. It's very easy to command the amount of wood and nails and whatever it is needed to produce a house. So me taking one off out of the economic pool of resources It's not that big a deal because we have a huge pool of economic resources, uh, houses included, in order to fund my need of a house. So this is what we're talking about. This is is what happens in a market economy. This is what happens when the interest rate is actually a market price based on the supply and demand of loans versus savings. As savings start to get depleted, the interest rate continues to increase and increase and increase encouraging people to uh, take out fewer and fewer loans and borrow fewer resources from the economic pool and instead start to produce back into the economic pool. And this makes sure that we always have this buffer between something going terrible or a contraction in the market is that the 
the market stays healthy and we have those resources, we have those saved fish so that we can make the nets as opposed to being forced to continually use our same fishing line that doesn't catch nearly as many fish. And, but, but when the government or the central bank then forces interest rates down when there is no savings, when there are no excess or surplus resources, what it does is it gets us to continue to it gets us to continue to consume those fish. It makes us buy those five fish that what is you know the guy had saved in order to produce the net, and that's where those resources go. And now he has to go back and start fishing just as hard as he can instead of taking five days off to produce a net to increase the production process. And and I love this. I actually uh, highlighted this in the article. Is that when you increase the available higher order goods when you when you save the capital for long-term production processes and increasing efficiency and uh, uh, the number of higher order goods available to uh, to make the consumer goods well that's exactly what the makes the production of those consumer goods more efficient that allows us more alternatives that can maybe skip processes or solve these problems better than our previous tools like the difference between you know a single fishing line and a net that's the higher order good the net that needs saved capital in order to invest in it so that we can make so we can catch fish at three times the rate we can have a higher number of fish being caught per hour of labor of the individuals uh, and, and the quote though uh, i'll just read it uh, exactly was quote this enhancement in individual provision reduces the need for present-oriented behavior as the satisfaction of present needs can be met more thoroughly, thus making them marginally less important and will allow focusing on the, further, on the further improvement of production, end quote. And this was a really great quote, and I want to expand on this a little bit before we close this episode out. Uh, this rant may have gone off the rails a little bit, but it, it's it's showing it, it's expressing the idea of a feedback loop in the uh, lower time preference of it's because uh, our let's give our example of the fisher and let's call him Bob because Bob no longer has to worry about catching a fish every single day because he took that time off he already made that savings. Took the made the exchange for his time versus the building of a net, the increasing of that production or the the betterment of that production process. Now, because his presence, uh, his present needs are better met, because he makes he catches three fish every day. He's got a two fish surplus every single day. He's like, I'm not really all that worried about it. So he can now his present oriented behavior is no longer his top concern. The extra wealth that he created allows him to focus more entirely, more like directly on improving the process again, on making the next step in the production process. Now, if he is always, if he, he's still using a line and a storm comes in, well then, you know, he might have a day where he can't have a fish. He's constantly struggling. He's constantly trying to make ends meet to get his one fish a day. 
but because he saved, because he extended capital and pushed his demand into the future rather than at the expense of his demand today, well, then he was able to increase that production process, make his little solo economy far more valuable, far more wealthy, and it's a feedback loop. Now he is more concerned and more focused on improving the production process again and making even more fish or making something else in his life better. Maybe he, you know, he can fish for one day and then spend two days improving his house. And when you compound that type of wealth efficiency, like, like the, the wealth gain or the efficiency and the, the economic growth across an economy with millions and millions of people, you see how much wealth that can be very quickly. And to think that all of our resources are constantly being put, even when we're on the edge of disaster, even when we're all in debt, when everybody's living paycheck to paycheck, and we are struggling to make ends meet, we have no incentive to save. We're, the, the thing that we need to do more than anything else, save money for the future to actually increase and better, we have so much technology that is being underutilized to improve production processes. And yet there is no market incentive available to actually push us in that direction. And that's where I hope, like, heart, like sound money, like that you cannot actually loan into existence, makes the manipulation of that interest rate pretty much impossible because you run out of money to loan at whatever perceived interest rate and uh, whatever dictated interest rate you think you're going to get away with. But sound money, a, a money that cannot be counterfeited, uh, brings back that market price. It makes it pretty much impossible to uh, manipulate the supply of savings, which is, which is what the interest rate is. It's covering up the fact that there is no savings, right? It's, it's loaning money into existence to make the appearance of abundance where there is actually scarcity. Because the money is just a... It's just a representation of the actual resources. So if you're just producing all of this money, you're not changing the resources that are available. You're just causing the prices of all of those resources to go up, which is making everybody poor, making it harder to afford everything, and forcing everybody to continue to spend and making it harder to consume the same amount. I mean, imagine you know, the same stuff that you're buying is going up in price, which is making you spend more time, more energy, more value and resources of your life on the exact same amount of goods, which is, that's, that's economic stagnation. That's, that creates poverty. It creates inequality. And having a sound money readjusts all of those incentives. It, it, it makes it impossible to manipulate that key economic indicator for how we should allocate value across time. It will make prices fall over time as the economy grows and becomes more productive and we have these uh, better production processes to work with and it will create, it incentivizes savings. I mean, HODL is the rallying cry of the Bitcoin space. What better cultural proof of the incentivization of savings can Bitcoin give out like that's better than HODL? It is the meme of lower time preference. <laughs> and it's awesome because of that. And, and the fact that you can't 
you can't fix these market problems. You can't fix our debt problem unless you figure out what the price of that debt actually is. And we have had price controls on debt for 100 years. Who knew? Look where it led us to a stagnant economy, to one where prices are always increasing and debts are to such absurd levels that we just now we're arguing that it just doesn't matter and we should just print and do whatever we want. Like we've completely lost touch with the underlying reality of how many fish we're producing versus how many we're eating. And uh, it's just, it's cool to see. It's, it's a relief, it seems like, to see like pushback, that the actual market and like an actual monetary good is coming and competing with that awful system that has thrown us entirely out of balance and bringing Austrian economics to the forefront and doing exactly like Ben Kaufman has done is making people realize and see and study the errors in our current economic thought where no one has even been exposed to these things, these ideas before. And some of them are pretty basic. Some of them are very, very core to just a general idea of what it means to have resources versus the future in the future versus using them up today. And so it's, oh, this was a really good piece. I have no idea. This, this rant went all kind of crazy. I don't even know where I am even more <laughs> anymore. Um, I got to get, I got to get done with this one. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to check out eToro. So happy these guys are sponsoring the show. Uh, and like I said, I'll have a link in the show notes. I'm going to try to find that if, if you do actually want to read that, um, that comic or the, the cartoon story thing about the, how an economy grows and why it doesn't. Uh, that is actually a really, really good piece. Um, and uh, particularly for just kind of the introduction of like core, core concepts of economic thought that are the basis of Austrian theory and that genuinely Keynesian economics doesn't account for. Um, and a huge thank you to Ben Kaufman for writing this. Don't forget to uh, follow him on Twitter and Medium and uh, drop him some major applause on this article. And until next time, it has been wonderful. This is the Crypto Economy Podcast. I am Guy Swan, and I hope you guys have a wonderful night, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Take it easy, guys.